I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show hosted by two book nerd friends who talk to other book nerds, including authors, poets, librarians, booksellers, and this week, costume designers. Our show follows this format. We begin with my crabby dullness and Amy's sometimes manning enthusiasm. It took us a little bit of time to become self-aware and recognize that we embody the grumpy sunshine trope that we often see in literature. That is followed by a fun conversation with a new bookish friend about what they love about being a bookworm. Then we talk about what we're reading, and finally, we put our guest on the hot seat to answer some silly probing questions. We're glad you've joined us. We love finding people who do interesting bookish things that are a little out of the ordinary, and our guest this week is costume designer and author Jacqueline Ferkins, who combines her amazing dressmaking skills with her love of novels. She creates dresses based on book covers that you can see on her Instagram page or her website. Located in Vancouver, Jacqueline teaches at the University of British Columbia. We also lucked out because we were able to chat with Jacqueline about her new book, which just hit bookshelves two weeks ago, titled Marlo Banks Redesigned, a rom-com featuring a behind-the-scenes look at the costume designing world. But first... We had a book club retreat! Woohoo! Yes, we do these annually, except for the year that we missed for 2020. I thought we'd been doing them longer, but I guess this was only the fourth year we've done it? It seemed like more. I'm pretty sure it's only been the fourth time. And we go to a different place every year. One of our members, she took us to her hometown and her parents only live there half time. And so we had the whole house to ourselves. And it was, it ended up being right on the Ohio River. We could see the boats going down the river from the back of the house. It was beautiful. Yeah, it was a great trip. But one thing I have realized, and every year that we do this, I realize it more that I just can't party the way... (laughs) The way I used to, I, I feel like I, I spent, you know, like Friday night was kind of like my woohoo night. And then Saturday I was like, oh, I'm tired. And yesterday I came home and took a nap and, oh, this getting older business is for the birds. Same. <laughs> I did the same thing. Yeah. I probably overindulged a bit Friday night, but I had a whole lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I Saturday. did too. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> on Saturday I was like, Oh, that's it. And then I took a big long nap. One of the most exciting things we did, though, which isn't that exciting, what we think is exciting might be a little different than other people. We It was a book club retreat, after all. But we were close enough to visit the Willard Library. We did an episode recently with a librarian at the Willard Library in Evansville, Indiana, that is apparently haunted. And we did an episode in October, you know, for spooky season about that. And Stacy, who we spoke to, was kind enough to give our group a little tour of the library and told us ghost tales. And some of the other librarians there told us, you know, some of their weird paranormal experiences. And the library itself is just magnificent. Like if you like architecture, especially like Victorian late 1800s kind of architecture. I mean, the craftsmanship of, you know, all the woodwork and it has this beautiful staircase with these humongous, oh, what's the word for it? Uh, Spindles. Spindles, not the word. I don't know. Wood. Lots and lots of wood. (laughs) (laughs) Let me look up parts of a staircase. You know, it's the thing on the end. Knoll? No, it's not knoll. It is called the... Uh, Newell. Newell. I was close. Newell. Noel, Newell, you know. Yeah. That big thing that's like the cherry on top. (laughs) Anyway, it was a beautiful library. 
It was. The end. The end. I always look forward to spending time with our book club friends. So Yeah. We even had one person come who was a former book club member who had moved to Atlanta, Georgia. It's been a long time. And she drove up just to see us all, which is one of my favorite things ever. So when we were talking with our guest this week, Jacqueline Ferkins, about her dress project that she does on Instagram, I couldn't help but think about that art exhibit that you and I went to last year that was at the Speed Art Museum here in Louisville. And I don't remember the name of the artist, but I think you do. Yeah, it was uh, Isabel de Borchgrave. Right. And she creates these wonderful dresses out of paper. They don't look like paper. They look like real fabric. But I was just thinking about the artistry that goes into all that, whether you're making them out of paper or out of fabric. And as Jacqueline was talking to us about deciding what kind of ribbon and how to make the scallops and all that kind of stuff, it just made me think, of that. You know, I'm not a fashion person, but I really love and appreciate the artistry because it isn't anything in my wheelhouse. And so her Instagram account and seeing what she is able to come up with inspired by books and and turn it into fashion is just, it's it's really cool. So it, it was fun talking with her. Let's get to that interview so that other people can learn about the amazing things that Jacqueline does. We all know social media can be a giant time suck, but sometimes you can find really good stuff like videos of cats or for book lovers, posts about what other people are reading. Our guest this week, Jacqueline Ferkins, is a costume designer and professor in the Department of Theater and Film at the University of British Columbia. And she does some amazing things with book covers and fabric. So Jacqueline, we're so glad to speak with you. I am thrilled to meet you guys and talk about this project with you. (laughs) So first, just tell us, where is the University of British Columbia? Is it in Vancouver? It is. It's in Vancouver, British Columbia. So all the way in the southwest corner of Canada. So it's gorgeous. I'm a mile away from the water, so I can go to work and wave at the waves um, in the mountains. It's pretty spectacular. That's a place that I've always wanted to visit. So I'm going to, I'm going to jealously sit here and ask you questions about uh, being a costume designer. That's my next question. How did you become a costume designer? Well, I was interested in theater. I also have some pretty strong social anxieties. I was not interested in being a performer, but I loved theater. I loved seeing shows and just sitting in a room and being transported to other worlds and getting invested in these stories that were unfolding on stage. But I painted and I sewed. So when I was in high school, I started working on scenery. I started, you know, sewing stars onto wizard costumes, kind of anything people needed a hand with. And then when I got to college, I was kind of taking a little bit of everything. I was one of those very directionless freshmen, Uh, no declared major. You know, I had a math course, a literature course, a little bit of everything, three different languages. And one of my roommates was going to auditions for the theater department. And she said, do you want to come? And I said, well, I don't want to audition, but I would love to come get involved. And so the very first show my freshman year that the theater department was producing I said, you guys need help with costumes? And they said, yes. And so I jumped in within my first few weeks of starting college and I loved it. And I just kept doing it and sort of built a reputation for having a skill set that could bring that into the theater department. Um, And then eventually over the time I was in college and then a couple of years after working, realized, wait a minute, this can actually be a career. 
which we don't really hear about. We think about people becoming actors, but there are so many other roles in film, television, theater, of people who want to be part of story making and world building and creation of characters that have nothing to do with acting. Um, I shouldn't say nothing to do with acting. Of course, it's all linked together, but there are just so many other opportunities. So yeah, and then I went back to grad school and kind of figured out how to do it in a way that gave me a process and wasn't just me sitting at a sewing machine and kind of throwing some drawings together. <laughs> and everything took off from there. And so I want to know how you started learning how to sew, because I remember when I was a kid, my mom wanted to teach me how to sew and I was not at all interested, but I'm taking <laughs> it that you probably are more a kid who was interested. I wish now that I had listened to her, but I'm just curious about what your path was to learning how to sew. Yeah, I loved it. You know, I would take my sister's dolls and I would make them clothes at a very, very young age. And granted, those first doll clothes were, you know, circles of fabric with a hole cut out for the head (laughs) and a piece of ribbon to create a belt. They were not complicated clothes. Um, But my mom sewed. So certainly enough that she could show me how to set a zipper in for the first time and what to do when my fabric was rumpling up funny. So we had a sewing machine around. But I think it was just kind of a natural instinct of enjoying building things. There's so much emphasis, particularly these days, since the internet is so prevalent and so many jobs have kind of converted to things that we do where we sit at a screen. But I think there's a human instinct to physically create things, whether that's baking, whether that's gardening, um, just to actually make something with our hands. And I had that in spades. So... I was that kid who, when I didn't come home on time, my parents would find me in the school art studio. Like I wasn't out at the party. <laughs> I was out like making posters for prom. I was doing, you know, anything that I could have a paintbrush or clay or jewelry making or sewing materials. So I think I just I had that instinct so, so strongly and then was fortunate to be in a family that allowed me to pursue some of these things. Um, You find a few good teachers who can be incredibly influential in what you carry on with. So, you know, some of it's how the world aligned around me and some of it's what I was born with and just was passionate about pursuing. So let's talk about your Instagram account, JF Kills Darlings. It features your beautiful dresses that are inspired or based off of book covers called Bookishly Attired on your website. So tell us why you decided to start making dresses that are reminiscent of book covers. I made my first ones when I became a novelist, when I got my first publishing contract, and my publisher sent me an extensive handbook on basically how to be a presence and promote your work online. And some of that involved trying to join every social media platform and how to engage with people. And again, as somebody with pretty paralyzing social anxiety, I didn't have social media accounts. You know, I had my tiny little Facebook account with my family and a handful of friends that I posted on once every three months um, when I had a cute picture of my dog. And that was about it. So I was terrified. I had no idea what to do with social media. Wasn't somebody who could start suddenly creating reels of myself doing fun and cute and happy things. (laughs) And I thought I cannot approach social media as a way to package myself, as a way to brand myself as an author. But I am a visual artist. 
So what can I use of the skills that I have to create something that I can share with people? We talk about content in such kind of derivative terms, but the idea of creating something that we share with people, I think is pretty magical. So I started to think, well, I make awesome dresses. So I did my first couple of dresses to help just have something to put on social media as a way to talk about my work. And then the pandemic hit. And I was just feeling extremely isolated. All of my theater work was ripped away. And I am so used to being able to create with other people, sit in a room and talk about story and how do my skills merge with other people's skills. And so we kind of go in these cycles of creation and story making and world building. And I just lost all of that. And so I went to some pretty dark places, as I think a lot of us did, especially early on in the pandemic. And I thought, you know, I can still sew. I'm not going to necessarily be in a room with a bunch of other authors making the collaborative art I make in theater. But if I can still find ways to connect with other people's storytelling and other people's creation, that'll be enough to get me through. So I reached out to a few of the authors that I had met in the year where I debuted as an author and I said, hey, you know, you probably saw those dresses that I did for my book. Are you interested in one for your book? And so I did about half a dozen of those and like my life came back. It was sort mm -hmm. of amazing. Just again, this simple act of creation, but I was flailing. I thought what, like, I didn't know what to do with myself. I was so used to being in a different kind of environment and talking with other artists. And so I just loved doing it. And then a few other authors would see what I was doing. And I'd, I'd say, oh, my gosh, I saw that person. I read their book and I really liked it. So I'd reach out to them and say, hey, do you want a dress for your book? And it just kind of grew from there. So, you know, the sort of irony, it started from one very kind of, I won't say shallow position, but almost superficial position. I was looking for something to sort of create content with as a way of engaging with social media. And the other, this very kind of profound psychological need to create and to create collaboratively to make sure that what I am creating is tied in with something somebody else creates. I've never had that kind of, I just want to stand at a canvas and paint a painting. No, I want to talk to other people. I want whatever I'm doing as creation to be connected with how others are creating and seeing the world and telling stories. So it was a way to fulfill this very deep psychological need for me at the same time. And it helped me just feel connected to people. Like we were all so isolated with the pandemic. And so to just have something to chat about. And then as people started following me, like I see this joy happen. Like I post this just kind of pretty dress and there's no weird social media kind of antagonism. Like we've all seen the way social media can get very kind of snarky. And it's just this pretty thing. It's like, hey, here's this fun book and here's this pretty dress and it's joyful. And that's all it is. That's it. Enjoy it. And so I watched the joy bubbling up from that. And that, of course, becomes incredibly fulfilling in another way. So you said in the beginning, you did a dress for the book that you were coming out with. Yep. And then there were a few books that you had read and, and you asked those authors if you could do it. At this point, how do you select books that inspire your dresses? Is it the book itself? Is it the cover with its colors, textures, things like that? Yeah, it's a great question because, of course, it's grown much more complex now that it's ju not just me and half a dozen other writers I met in my debut year. I'm connected with more writers. I'm connected with more books. 
It's a combination of things. Often I do love it if there's some kind of personal connection to the author. So I'm far more inclined to make an offer on a dress if it's an author that I am connected with on social media or somebody that I've chatted with, somebody that I did a panel event with, somebody that I met in my debut year, somebody I share an agent with. We might have chatted a little bit as you know, somebody new joins the agency and we say, hey, how are you doing? Do you have any questions? So a lot of the dresses that I end up sort of offering out or choosing to design are based off some kind of personal connection. I don't do a lot of dresses for authors that I've never met, never interacted with, have no social media connection, but I do some. So number one is, do I have any idea who the author is and will they enjoy it? Because there is something about making one of these dresses. They do take a fair amount of time and money and not even having the author see it or the book designer see it or the PR folks see it. And I think, oh, that's just kind of a shame because they just think it's joyful and I want them to see it and get a smile on their face out of it. So first of all, is the connection with the author. Second of all, it does come down sometime to books and covers. There have been a handful of books that I have read and really enjoyed, but the covers are really, really complicated and they just don't lend themselves super well to address design. Or it's a cover that, for example, just has a title and a photograph of a face. And mm-hmm. I think uh, that would just be a dress with a big face on it. Like, I, don't know, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. So there have been a couple of times I've chatted with an author and said, you know what? I loved your book. I will happily cheer it on on social media, but I don't think this is the one to do uh, a dress for. There's one I'm going to uh, hopefully get to dive into within the next couple of weeks. It's for an author that I've chatted with over the last year. And her first two books were ones that just, again, we chatted about it and the covers just did not lend themselves to dress design. They were very photographic. And then her third book came out and I said, ah, this is the one like this. Now we have shapes and we have colors and there's a way to kind of abstract the idea of proportions on a book cover into proportions on a dress. So I'm going to do her third book. And occasionally I read a book that has a cover that I think would be amazing as a dress. And then I read the book and I think, oof, gosh, not this one. It's pretty rare. I'm somebody who can find something to cheer on in almost any book. But I have a few sort of sticking points. You know, like if there's a book, especially in the YA space, that is very shameful around sexuality or there's something that I feel like is just tackling a subject in a way that I don't think is ultimately encouraging to readers, I might just kind of say, oh, gosh, I think I'm a little busy on this one. You know, maybe on the next one, we'll chat about it. So it's a little bit of a mix up. It's certainly a connection with the author. It is uh, books that I love. It is books that have covers that translate well. I've also had a lot of fun. You guys might know of Carly Ray London, who has a social media site. Hey, it's Carly Ray. She has a book club and she's, you know, just like amazing at social media in a way I could never touch in my life. She's just so genuine and cheerful and joyful and does amazing photos and reels and everything. And she reached out to me to just kind of pick a book together to do a project for. And we hit it off. And then we start like the DM chain is now so long. It's like, what about this book? And have you read this? And have you checked out this author? And so we throw ideas around. And now I've done a number, I think we've done about eight of them together. And she has a couple other dresses for me that we will be posting in the coming weeks, 
where they're books that we just pick together that we both enjoy that sort of translate well to dress design. And then I make the dress and she does all the, like takes the photos and does the reels and talks it up and does all the other stuff. So it's been a really, really fun partnership. Um, it's been great getting to know her and just, you know, you guys know when you find that book person that you can just like, you read a book and it's the person you want to say, Hey, what about this one? I loved it. Have you read it? And then you start chatting about what you loved or you couldn't believe this happened in chapter 13 and so it's been really great on a personal level as well oh and to just be able to do the part that you love and then let her do the part that she loves right Um, it's amazing people keep saying like but you're sending her free dresses and I say you don't understand this is a 100% win-win situation (laughs) right yes because if you're not a social media person that can be so stressful yeah, it's that a, it's, part of it. Yeah, it's a strange landscape. And I still have a very conflicted relationship with social media. I'm so grateful for it. I think it does good work. I think it connects people. I think it builds community. I think it's a communication tool. Seeing the, to some degree, the democratization of a number of things because there's a power and how quickly it can work. So it's kind of shifted how gatekeeping happens. But it also, as we all know, can be tricky for mental health. It can create that fear of missing out. It can create a lot of pressure to be on all the time. Mm. So there's just so much, right? Like, I don't know how people follow 5,000 people. And I think, how do you even know what any of those people are doing anymore? So it can, you know, it can make us chase things that we shouldn't necessarily be putting our time into chasing if they're not making us happy. Well, I want to ask a question about when you're thinking about a dress, and especially if you've read the book. So are there ever books where you are pulling in themes or symbols that you wouldn't necessarily pick up from the cover, but you're inspired by the story or something in the book that you then put on a dress? Absolutely. And I do this wherever possible. I do not design any dress until I have completely read the book. So there are certainly dresses that I have agreed to do or offered to do if they're from authors I already know and I've read their other work and I'm confident that I will fully engage in their story. But I always read the book and to some degree, it always influences the dress design, sometimes in really, really subtle ways, but sometimes in bigger ways. So, for example, one of the ones that I posted recently is for Jenna Evans Welsh's Spells for Lost Things, which just very recently released. And it was a story that the structure of it is very much two separate plots. It's two points of view. And they kind of meet in the middle and then weave back out again and come back together. So I did these two really, really long waist ties that wrap around and kind of become one. Mm -hmm. So that's a way a kind of structure goes into the design. Certainly tone does, like a a rom-com that's super peppy, all use really crisp fabrics. Oftentimes a print will be a little bit bolder in those. Uh, I'll make it kind of a dress that you could go dancing in. There's something that kind of feels like the tone of the book rather than the themes of the book. Whereas something that is softer, subtler, more gothic, more horror, I want to feel like that kind of work, which is sometimes you can tell from the cover alone, but not always. You know, there was one that was about a haunted house and things were kind of emerging from the house. So I made the details on the dress sort of emerge from an, an inner layer into an outer layer. 
there was Kim Smetchkal's books, Ink in the Blood. She plays a lot with gender and kind of crossing genders and non-binary genders. So I played a lot with masculinity and femininity. So like there was a very female shaped bustier that really like amped up the bosom. And then on top of it, there was a male vest and a top hat. So we were kind of playing with what was male and female on that. So I sneak in things where I can, you know, books about people who need to travel often get more pockets or jackets or layers. <laughs> I um, love that. <laughs> yeah, there's one that there's one that I'm going to post hopefully tomorrow that's in a dystopian world. So it's got military pockets on it and a kind of sense of destruction about it. So I do try and get a feel of a book. And sometimes you can look at the dress and look at the cover and go, oh, you didn't even need to read the book for that. But it's in my head as I'm figuring it out. So like I say, sometimes permeate in kind of bigger ways and sometimes in smaller ways. So do you ever see a book cover? You know, say you go to the bookstore, the library, you see a book cover and you're like, oh, I love that book. But maybe it's a a genre that normally that's just not your jam. Do you ever go then and you're like, I love the color and I'm really, I'd love to design a dress. And so you pick up the book and read it just even though it's not something you would normally read? I do. Oftentimes it's with some kind of conversation of somebody else who has loved the book or loved the author, but like I'm not by nature a horror thriller person. I don't kind of gravitate to those titles, but some of those covers are amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, I had read Erin Craig's first book, but when her second one, Small Favors, when she posted the cover reveal, I thought, like, I just reached out right away. I hadn't read the book, but I said, oh my God, that's got to be a dress. Can we, can we do it? Are you up for this? And even though it's it's somewhere in my wheelhouse of reading that it is YA, it's kind of spooky, sort of atmospheric horror and not something that I would necessarily have, you know, it wouldn't have been first on my to be read list, but it certainly jumped up. So yeah, there are some thrillers. There are also certainly some authors that wouldn't have been on my radar that I absolutely see the the cover. And I think, oh my God, this would just be so much fun to work with, especially things that kind of go a little bit gothic. The funny thing for me is people will often sort of say, hey, what about this one? But it'll be a cover that has a very literal dress pictured on it. Mm. And that to me is a different kind of design. It's awesome. And there are lots of people who do phenomenal bookish cosplay where you are taking an illustration that an illustrator did specifically for that design and recreating it. But I prefer the covers that are more abstract. So I'm thinking about color, proportion, shapes, texture, what is the element of the title against the background as opposed to here's a picture of a dress on the cover and now let me recreate it. That mm-hmm. doesn't kind of get my wheels turning the same way. I can't believe I've done over a hundred of these now. So you talked about contacting you know, authors if you see a cover and reaching out to them. Do you always contact authors and do you feel like you have to get their permission to create a dress from their book? When this started, I was doing all of these as giveaways. And I liked giving away the dress with a signed copy of the book because my hope was always that the giveaways increased interest in the books. And I wasn't just giving away dresses to people who wanted a free dress. The point of this was, again, to connect with other authors, other readers, to be talking about the books, to be kind of encouraging people to pick up the books. So when I started, and again, I started with authors that I already had personal connections with, they were giveaways where I would give away the dress and give away a signed copy of the book that the author donated. So in that case, I always contacted the author to say, hey, do you want to do this? 
with the collaborations I do with Carly Ray, since the dresses go to her, we don't even contact the authors ahead of time because we're not doing a giveaway. We're not trying to give away the book. She's sort of figuring out the content from her end. So those I don't worry about contacting the author. So I don't necessarily feel that I have to get the author's permission, but I am definitely more invested in spending the money, spending the time in making a dress if I know it's something that an author is interested in, is excited about. And not because I need them to bend over with congratulations and appreciation for me, but again, just that feeling of, I did a thing that is here to support and cheer on your work, and I hope it just brings a smile today. So I'm more inclined to kind of dive into that if I reach out to an author and say, hey, I'm interested in doing this. Is this a project that interests you? And if I get a response back, if somebody says, oh, that's awesome, super excited, then I like the, uh, within the hour, I'll be online looking for fabric and materials. Whereas if I don't hear anything, I'm less inclined to do it. Certainly, if I'm going to do a giveaway, I want the author involved because my hope is we we get them a new fan. We get somebody who is super excited about the book and then they're like, and I have this cool dress to go with it. And now I can cheer it on with that. So, you know, the more they can kind of bring joy and increase readership and get people talking about books, the better. So, yeah, for giveaways, I still reach out to authors, but sometimes especially with the collaborations with Carly Rae, we just go for it. And there have certainly been authors I've reached out to that I haven't heard back or authors who say, sure, let's do a giveaway. And then when I get the dress ready, they don't respond. So I, you know, some of them have just gone into our costume stock where I teach. So oh. yeah, I do, yeah, I do have a few that I put together that we think, oh gosh, all right, we'll just, we'll just stock this one. But most authors really are, it's just fun, right? Like it's just something kind of different that celebrates their work. So I've, I've been really, really happy with the communication and the connections I've made with other authors with this by and large. Well, let's talk about sort of the, the nitty gritty of dressmaking. So how long does it take you to make these dresses? Yeah, there's a pretty big range with what it takes. Some of the, particularly the rom-coms where I have a just flat base color, Flat, not as an unexciting, but flat as in like, it's a pink square on the cover <laughs> um, or a red square or a yellow square when I can get a, a color match for that. And the base dress is pretty straightforward. I can make the base dress in a day. And then the decoration, some of them are just a few bows. Some of them are more complicated. So on the simplest side, we're talking about a two day project. On the more complicated side, I think at this point, the one that took the longest was a dress for Within These Wicked Walls, which is the haunted house one, actually, that I talked about before. The cover is this kind of decaying brocade wallpaper. It's a turquoise and gold. And I spent ages looking for a turquoise and gold fabric online, and I could not find one. So I made it which meant I bought turquoise fabric and created a stencil and with gold paint, painted eight yards of fabric with oh the brocade. Gosh. And what was great about it is it has the, like I could paint the decay into it. So, you know, there are places where the gold is really solid and places where the gold fades away. And I loved the way it came out, but it meant I spent a good week just painting fabric let alone then putting the dress together. And it was this boned corseted bodice, which is much more complicated than a really simple kind of shirtwaist dress. So, you know, that one we're probably talking three weeks. There are also sometimes there have been a couple of dresses where my first stab doesn't work. 
There was one I did recently, Summer of Bitter and Sweet. It's a bunch of layers of blue scallops. And I tried very literally to recreate the cover in the same proportions on the dress, but the proportions didn't work on the dress. I have a kind of standard shape I use because it is somewhat close to the kind of length and width proportion we have on a, on a standard kind of paperback cover. So like, I don't do a lot of floor length dresses. I don't do a lot of short dresses. I have a kind of length and proportion that works really well. But I had tried too literally to get like every row of blue scallops in and it just got messy. And, you know, where the proportion hit on the bust, the waist, the hip, it just didn't work. So I took the whole thing apart and I Uh. redid it. And in that case, you know, then the dress ends up taking several weeks of kind of working on it in bits and pieces. But it could have been done in a week if I liked the result the first time. But there have been a couple that have taken some sort of at least partial go back to the drawing board on as I put them together and look at them on a dress form and go, oh, something's just not quite clicking about this. It doesn't feel like the book or it doesn't feel like the cover or it needs a little bit more punch or contrast somehow. And then I take things off, put them back on, try adding a jacket, kind of play with details. So yeah. Very shortest end would be two days. And I've done a couple of those where they just come together and they work. The last one we posted for Dead Romantics uh, has all these flowers on the hem. And, you know, every flower and every leaf and every stem is individually sewn on. So that kind of work really, really adds up. And I've done a few with paint work and the paint work always adds up because it has to be done in layers. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's, you know, an hour on this day and then an hour on the next day, an hour on the next day. And so they kind of trickle on in the middle of other projects. So when you say you spend a day on them, I mean, it would take me eight full hours to create, I don't know, like a little quilt square, because that's me. So when you say, is that like after work, you might spend a couple hours or? I mean, I would I would call that a full work day. Because I teach, and some of my teaching is in a costume shop, I teach costume construction classes, among other things. So I'm in a costume shop, and I'll often sort of have a project with me. And I'll be supervising students and, okay, I've got 10 minutes where they're all, they all know what they're doing right now. So I'll get these bodice pieces cut out and now I'm supervising students for the next hour. And now I've got 20 minutes. I can do the hem on that. So when I say it takes a day, I'm talking kind of six to eight hours. Can you use some of these as part of your instruction? You know, just depending on the, I guess, the course level that you're teaching. What I enjoy is that the students see them come together. Mm. I especially like that they see me change things because I think for people who are fairly new to sewing, which a lot of my students are, to see me put something together and say, oh, you know what? I need to take that sleeve off and do a different sleeve makes them realize they're not getting it wrong when they hit points that they need to redo. I think there can be a sort of panic of, I just want to get it right the first time on everything. And Creation isn't like that. I don't know any artist or creator ever who has just gotten it right every time, the first time, with no mistakes made. And of course, we learn from those mistakes. So I don't necessarily use the dresses directly as a teaching tool, but I do like that the students see them come together. They see me making decisions. They see Mm -hmm. me holding up eight different ribbons and going, okay, which one works best and why? This one looks more like the cover, but this one feels more like the book. This one moves, this one doesn't. Do I want something that moves or do I want something that feels really still? Do I like the feel of velvet against cotton or is something that has a little bit of shimmer more interesting? 
So I like that they see me make decisions and that they see me create. So that's been really good as far as teaching tools. Right now this semester, they're um, they're building Renaissance outfits with full corseted bodices and giant oh, wow. shirts. So that's super fun to watch them learn how to build those. Well, you were talking about the creative process somewhat, but you know, as you mentioned before, you are also an author. And so you've written three books. You have a new one that's come out called Marlo Banks Redesign, which is a rom-com about a costume designer. So tell us a little bit about your writing life. Were your first two books YA and this one is for adults? That's the way I understand it. Okay. Yeah, correct. Yeah. My first two books were young adult, which is really how I, when I started writing, I knew I wanted to write for teens. I think a lot of us who have that instinct to write for teens want to write the books that we wish we had as teenagers, which fortunately, the market is much more populated with diverse books now. But you know, there are those books about the characters that we want to see more of. And for me, some of that was I felt like I kept encountering young adult books for a while, particularly in the romance sphere. Every heroine was stunningly beautiful. Like she walked in the room and everyone around her, oh, she's so beautiful. Maybe she's beautiful, but she doesn't know it, but she's still really beautiful. (laughs) Um, And then there became a bit of pushback on that. But the way the pushback ended up coming to fruition is that now girls all had to be strong. So, and then, then they became beautiful and strong. And I thought, my <laughs> God, that's a lot of pressure. And yeah. what, about, what about the girls who want to feel lovable, who wouldn't classify themselves as beautiful or strong, are insecure and messy and their ponytails sliding off their head and their shoes are kind of crappy. And so I wanted to write romance books for those girls, for the girls who are a little insecure about themselves where at no point in the book does a guy fawn over how beautiful they are. Um, They are valued for other things. And they're also not strong all the time. They're vulnerable and questioning and insecure. So I started with young adults. And then, uh, you know, partly in conversations with my agent, just about, hey, is it worth trying the adult space? Traditional publishing is a slow process, as I'm sure you guys have heard from other Mm -hmm. folks involved in the industry, if you don't have your own particular experiences with that. And so, you know, you sell a book, but it's, you know, two to three years before that book comes out. And while you're on contract, you can't try and sell anything that is for the same readership or in the same genre. So, you know, and sometimes you're trying to sell a book for years. So you could be sitting for four years on a young adult book, and you can't, pitch another young adult book at the same time. So my agent said, well, hey, what about trying to write for adults? And it was really fun to say, okay, now I'm not writing about, especially in the romance space, I'm not writing about somebody who's having one of their first romances. I'm writing about somebody who's been through some stuff. And I feel like we have different perspectives on what we're looking for in a romantic relationship when it's not our first one anymore. So kind of approaching that headspace with the romance idea. And then I also just dying to get a book out there about a costumer. I think that, you know, so often, not that costumers are the least represented in the world, there are much, much bigger issues about representation that the industry needs to catch up with. But I felt like every costume designer I encountered in the book was somebody who wanted to be an actor, but they weren't good enough, or they weren't confident enough, so they can just do the costumes. And I thought, mm. but what about all of us who do it because we love it, and we don't want to be actors, and it's not about we wish we were confident enough to learn the lines and go on stage. So it was my chance to say, like, here's really what this world is. 
for somebody who does this for a living and kind of dish about some of the goofy things that come up, you know, like there was definitely a show I was working on where we had, I think there were five actresses and, you know, one found out that her shoes cost $500 and then all the others had to have $500 shoes. There's just just weird things that happen in this industry. Or there was one where, you know, I had shown the director of sketch and he was all over it and we were all excited and we had it built um, in this very expensive shop. So this dress cost thousands of dollars to build. It was all tiny, tiny little organza ruffles. It's just hours and hours and hours of labor. And it was this beautiful blue silk organza dress and we put it on stage. And at the first dress rehearsal, the director goes, why isn't it black? I said, but the sketch was blue. And he said, oh, but I kept a Xerox copy of it in black and white. <laughs> So like, it's a world that is full of quirky stories and real things that happen and personalities. And it's not just, you know, look at the beautiful glamorous gowns. All this other stuff is happening behind the scenes. And I thought we don't really get to see that very often in fiction. So here's a chance for me to kind of open the curtain a little bit and say, here's some of the stuff that's going on in, in the world that I know very, very well. Going through your Instagram account is so much fun. It's just astounding. I love it. I'm so thrilled. Like, that's what it's for, right? Like, I just want it to be that little spark that somebody's kind of scrolling through their Instagram and there's somebody's food and somebody's pet. Like, and there's just this cool dress and it's fun and you enjoy it. And then you kind of move on to the next things, giving people a space that is joyful and gets you kind of thinking about books and. So I think everybody should go check out your Instagram page. But if they don't have Instagram, do you have pictures of the dresses on your website? Yes. So my website is just my name. It's Jacqueline Ferkins. If you search that, you'll find it. And I don't upload them every week. But every few weeks, I will add a few more to that page. Also, I don't put all the detail work on it, but you can see kind of the big picture of here's the dress, here's the cover, and here's how they link up together. So I have most of them up there. I think I'm a few weeks behind, but you can certainly go to my website and see them there. Well, I think now is a good time for us to take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Jacqueline Ferkins and with Carrie. Carrie, what are you reading? Just tell me. Just tell me what you're reading. (laughs) So I read a book. It was not a planned read. You know, sometimes I just happen upon a book that sounds interesting and this book fit the bill. So it's called Asleep, The Forgotten Epidemic That Remains One of Medicine's Greatest Mysteries by Molly Caldwell Crosby. So my husband and I watched the Sandman series on Netflix, and I know you and I have talked about that. And in that series, season one, uh, it alludes to the sleeping sickness that happens in the world when Dream is imprisoned by an unscrupulous human in 1916. I was on Twitter and I happened to see a tweet by someone who said there was actually a sleeping sickness in the United States during that time. And the person who tweeted that, I I don't remember who it was, but they mentioned this book by Molly Caldwell Crosby. So I picked it up at the library. So encephalitis lethargica, as it is known, traveled throughout the world and affected people from 1916 up to the 1930s. Some people would sleep for months, 
and then awaken. Others fell asleep and never woke up. Some people would experience a flu, you know, they would get sick and then they would recover. And then months or years later, they would develop Parkinson's like problems. So the book follows the story of doctors who treated patients with this disease, as well as mentions the individuals who had suffered from encephalitis lethargica and then came out of their Parkinson's like rigor and stupor due to levodopa under the care of Oliver Sacks. So some people might remember there was a movie. Gosh, yeah. I don't even know what year it was, but it was called Awakenings. With and it Robin started Williams. with Robin Williams. And that is based on Dr. Oliver Sacks's book, also called Awakenings, in which he was treating these people. So the people in that movie, the reason they were in this, you know, stupor is because they had had sleeping sickness 30 years prior. So, you know, I never picked up on that when I saw the movie. I mean, I was a lot younger, but I didn't realize that that was why those people were like that. You know, they had had earlier in their lives encephalitis lethargica. One of the most interesting things, I mean, the book was fascinating and it talked about, you know, how many millions of people were affected with this form of encephalitis. But one of the most interesting things to me was the reason why the author wrote the book. Her grandmother had had sleeping sickness when she was younger. Now, her grandmother was able to recover, uh, you know, to a certain extent, get married, have children, have a family, take care of a house. But as the author describes it, her, her grandmother was also sort of, and I'm putting this in air quotes, not there. So her grandmother would drift in and out of conversations and was considered, you know, you hear people say, oh, that, that person's a little touched. Well, that was, you know, what people said about her grandmother. And it was sort of the residual effects of this sleeping sickness that had had an impact on her neurological functioning. So I thought it was a really fascinating book. It was a quick read. And uh, I sort of love it when that happens, like when you're watching something and you find out, oh, well, part of this fictional story is actually based on something true. And then I usually, what happens is I do a deep dive into that. So uh, again, the book was called Asleep, the Forgotten Epidemic that Remains One of Medicine's Greatest Mysteries by Molly Caldwell Crosby. And I recommend it. Well, Jacqueline, what have you been reading? Well, just yesterday, I finished Interview with a Vampire, which I had oh. never read before. So everybody started talking about spooky books. And I thought, gosh, I don't read that many spooky books. And I'm not that well versed in vampire lore, which, you know, vampires seem to be making a comeback these days in fiction. And I thought, well, there's, you know, there's this book that's just been out there for ages that I've never seen. Of course, I've seen the movie because the costumes are brilliant. <laughs> um, but I hadn't read the book and it was really fascinating to read. I mean, really, we're following this moral dilemma of this man who becomes to his mind a monster and has to grapple with what that means and what does he do with his power. They're obviously very human questions put in the metaphor of becoming a monster. You know, how do we deal with our impulses? How do we deal with our hungers and our desires and the bad choices we make that we can't redo? The things we do that hurt other people, even inadvertently. So it's this big moral dilemma, but then there's this kind of fascinating relationship with the interviewer, and that has its own story that I really enjoyed. The arc of that was kind of the most fascinating to me. But 
it was just fun to dive into this book that's been around for ages and dives into the vampire legend, not for the kind of gore of it, although the atmosphere and certainly the descriptions are incredibly detailed and the, you know, you, you feel yourself in these locations and you, you sense the blood and you smell it and you like the writing's incredible, but is ultimately a story about what makes us human in the middle of this metaphor. So yeah, I found it fascinating. There are a ton of books in the series. I will probably not read all of the books in the series, but <laughs> it was great to just kind of like start off October reading something that was super, super gothic and totally atmospheric. Well, and there's a new series, a new adaptation yep. coming out. I can't remember what streaming service it's going to be on. I think it's AMC. I just found out about that today, ironically. So I didn't read the book the TV series. But yeah, I think it's on AMC. And it's looking at pictures for it. I think it has a very, very different vibe than the I think it was 1994, the one with Tom Cruise and Antonio Banderas. And um, like, it was a whole host of sex symbol men at the time. (laughs) Um, And the book is so homoerotic, like there's just Uh no way around it. Yeah, I, I think the newer series, it certainly looks kind of cleaner, less about the decadence. So I'm not sure exactly where they're going with it. But it's interesting that there are two different adaptations that people can kind of look at and see what mm-hmm. they relate to. That the most interest to me, anyway, the most interesting thing about that book is that it was inspired by her daughter who died as a child. Hmm. And that book was sort of part of her grieving process. And Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. There's you can find lots of articles about it. All right. Well, Amy, what have you been knocking out over there? Well, it's so funny because after I heard you describe your new book, Jacqueline, the book that I'm going to talk about today has some similarities, as uh, and you'll see why. So I listened to an audiobook of a book called "Thanks for Listening" by Julia Whalen, and I heard about this book on Instagram, I believe, and it's a new release. And many readers said to listen to it on audio, which I did because I'll always take an audiobook recommendation. And this book is a little meta because the narrator of this book is the author, Julia Whalen, who was an award-winning audiobook narrator in real life. And her book is about a very popular audiobook narrator whose name is Sawani Chester, who used to narrate romance audiobooks when she first started in the business under a pseudonym, but she no longer narrates romance because she does not believe in the happily ever after that romance books as a genre are required to have. So she now narrates all kinds of other books under her real name. But she gets a message from the estate of a hugely popular romance author who recently passed away. When she first started narrating audiobooks, she did do romance and she did a lot for this particular author. And the author says that she has one last project that she wrote before her death. And she's asked Sawani to narrate this book to be co-narrated with a hugely popular male audiobook narrator named Brock McKnight, which is also a pseudonym. And she only wants the book to be done if these two narrators do it. And if either one of them declines, she doesn't want it done at all. And the catch is that if she, if Suwani does this audiobook, it will make her a huge amount of money. And Suwani actually does need the money. Her grandmother, who's very close to her, needs to be moved into a memory care facility because of dementia. And it will cost a lot of money. So this is a rom-com. 
that will no doubt have a happy ending and there is a romance, but what I enjoyed most about it was getting a little insight into the world of audiobook narration, which is what made me think about your book, Jacqueline. So I, I listened to a lot of audiobooks and it was interesting for me to hear why some audiobook narrators might sound different than others or why many narrators use pseudonyms. And her portrayal of dealing with a loved one with dementia and the costs and complexities of that involved was very real and relatable. This was not a super steamy book. It had a little steam, just not a lot of steam. So if romance is something that you don't read a lot of and you want to ease yourself in, this may be the book for you. Uh, Julia Whalen has written one previous book called My Oxford Year, which was not a romance. Uh, so I think I will go back and try that book as well. Again, the name of the book is Thanks for Listening by Julia Whalen. Jacqueline, have you heard of that book? Yeah, I just thought it was great. I thought it was so charming. And it was. blended mm-hmm. all the different threads. I love when romance has a really strong personal journey. It's not just about two people yes. who are hot for each other. Right. Like we, want, we want them to be hot for each other, but I need a purpose for that romance. Like right. we can't have it exist in a bubble. So the fact that this woman was very believably struggling with things about her career and her family. And so then when she finds the romance, it changes how she relates to some things she was struggling with. So yeah, I just thought it was lovely. And I also loved the kind of insight into audiobook production, you get those little glimpses that's, again, that kind of pulling open the curtain and peeking right. in on the industry. Very good. Well, these all sound like good books. Let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to put Jacqueline in the hot seat. We are back with Jacqueline Ferkins, and we are going to ask her these very personal and maybe funny questions. They're not that personal. Maybe a little bit personal. You live in a a tiny house. I remember watching on HGTV several years ago, you know, they used to have a series that was all about tiny houses. So I'm very interested in this. There's still a housing shortage in the city where I live in Vancouver. And one of the ways the city started to address that is they allowed people to build what we call laneway houses, which basically means if you have a separate garage you can build up to, I think it's a 500 square foot house around your garage, and then you rent them out. So there are a number of these all around the city that basically you're living in a separate little house. Mine is 420 square feet that is kind of in somebody's backyard. And my landlords are lovely and amazing. I can't imagine this living situation if you don't get along with your (laughs) landlords, but they're fantastic. But I mean, I will say it was an adjustment of figuring out like I had to get rid of my books, I had to get rid of furniture, like I feel the size of the space. But I also love that nothing is wasted. So I think for anybody else who lives in a small space, whether it's a small apartment, you know, I certainly love the kind of feel that like there's this entire little house that's mine. It's completely self-contained. I can make noise. I don't have to worry about that. But yeah, you really do figure out you hang on to what you need and you let go of anything else, which is partly why I give away dresses. Like I have no space. You know, my closet, you can only hang things at half level. Like you couldn't hang a full length dress or a full length jacket or anything. Um, It's in a kind of slanted roof is where my closet is. 
So it's very small, but I still manage to sew in it. It's quite funny. If you walk into my space, you'll see, you know, on the window seat is just stacks and stacks of fabric and bins of snaps and hooks and buttons and those kinds of things. My tiny little two-person dining table is where my sewing machine sits. I iron on what's called a sleeve board, which many people think of as a miniature ironing board, but it actually exists for sleeves. But that is my ironing space as I set that on my kitchen counter and move my toaster aside. It's a bit of a comedic living. At some point, I should definitely write a rom-com of two people (laughs) who have to share a tiny house because you would be on top of each other um, in some very kind of charming ways. So I love it, but it's a unique living. And it took me, I would say it probably took me about three months until I loved it. At first, I was like, ah, I just miss having a coffee table. Like, <laughs> where am I going to pile all my stuff? And I miss my sewing space. And I miss seeing a shelf full of books that I've read. And those kind, that kind of familiar friends feeling that you get when you start to keep things that have resonated. But yeah, it's sort of a charm to it. And like I say, there's something that just feels good about only hanging on to what I need. All right. Question number two. So you have run many, many marathons. So how do you train for them when you have so many other projects going on? And what is it that keeps you doing them instead of being like a one and done type situation? If you talk to marathoners or endurance athletes in almost any sport, there is a very strange addiction to it. (laughs) Uh, I wrote a comic about it once where, you know, you go through the training and by the time you get to the race, you just want it done and you can't wait and you slog yourself across the finish line and you're sore and you're grumpy. And about five minutes later, you're already searching for the next race. It's a strange thing that happens to the mind that I don't fully understand. But I think when I ran the first one, I was just coming out of graduate school and graduate school was very, very intense for me. And I loved it. Best three years of my life in many ways. But all I did was theater. All I did was costuming and scenic design. Like everything was theater. And I just started to feel like this very one dimensional person. And I needed something else in my life. So um, a friend of mine was training for a marathon. And I thought, well, let me give it a shot. I've always been a casual runner. And I became just really fascinated with how you can train your body to do something that it physically cannot do at the beginning. But if you're diligent and you're patient and you put in the work, you can do it after a few months. So that became kind of a way to look at a lot of different things in my life that maybe in the moment I can't do something, but what steps do I need to take to get there? It's also a lovely way to build community. A lot of people who are training for long distance races join up with a group, which I certainly did when I when I realized I was going to do more than one. I can be out there for three hours running, plotting my next novel. I can be out there trying to decide what color I'm going to make something. I can be working through interpersonal challenges in the workplace. It can become a very, I don't want to say zen-like space, but a good space for processing. And in the meantime, your body is physically changing. Like you actually change what your body can do, how your heart can function, how your lungs can function. And it's just by going a little further every week, really. I mean, people who are very serious about it would never say, oh, it's just about that. Like you do the speed training and you do this and you do that. But for me, as somebody who is not a, I would not consider myself a competitive runner. It's really about, yeah, figuring out how to get to point B when point B is impossible when you start. (laughs) And it's been a great way to then approach when I started writing novels, which is also seems really daunting at the beginning. 
But having been through a number of marathons before I ever started writing, I also know, I mean, every marathon I've run, there are points in that race where I just want to give up. I just think, what was I doing? What was I thinking? Why did I put myself in this situation again? But there's another side to that. Like you get to the end of that and then part of it's joyful again. And there's Mm -hmm. a sense of achievement later. So I also feel like endurance athleticism is great training for any number of pursuits where, again, the goal seems impossible at the beginning. And there are going to be points along the way where you're going to have some major questions about whether you want to keep doing it. But if you keep on and you find your support networks, you get to the points where it's really joyful again. Okay, so your last question is one that's near and dear to my heart, because you say that you're obsessed with your dog. And as someone else who is obsessed with her dogs, what makes you so sure that you're that obsessive? Totally fair question. Um, Well, let's see. I would happily ditch a partner if they had a problem with my dog. Like my dog comes first. Mm. Um, I will also say to the extent where I have interviewed for jobs where they tell me I can't take my dog to work and I'm done with the interview. Um, You know, not not in an unpolite way, but I go, okay, this is not a job I need. Whereas I go to an interview for a job and they say, yes, and you can bring your dog in. I'm like, great. When can I start? What do I need to do to impress you? How do I get this job? I have literally shaped a lot of my life choices around time with my dog. You know, like she doesn't stay home alone. She goes to the fanciest, best little doggy daycare in town. So she's got (laughs) friends to play with all day. My tiny house is like 30% workspace, 30% essential space, like bed, you know, kitchen counter and 30% dog toys. It's a little bit silly, really, the, the kind of focus of my life around my dog. Okay, you win. I'll give it to you. <laughs> but now I have to know about your dog. What's her name? What kind of dog is she? Her name is Stella. She is a Welsh terrier. They're very stubborn, funny, independent dogs. So she makes me laugh every day, which I absolutely adore. Looks like a little teddy bear, but is full of mischief. She needed a theater name. So anybody <laughs> who knows, you know, who can picture Marlon Brando. Stella! Her name desire, Stella. Um, and she has a little black fur star on her chest. So that's how she got her name was kind of part, part her looks and part she needed a good theater name that, yeah, I could shout across the theater and give people a laugh. So you were able to take her to work with you? Yep. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. She, I mean, she's trouble. So I can't take her when I've got a class of 25 people. But if I'm just going to be working in the costume shop for a little while, my coworker who shares the space with me, she also has a dog. So the two dogs will hang out together. And then the students come down to have some dog therapy time, too. Well, Jacqueline, this has been this has been awesome. You combined, you know, your love of dogs, which is always first and foremost, and your love of books and your love of fashion. What better thing could we have? Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you guys for having me. This was an absolute delight getting to talk with you guys about the project and books and dogs and (laughs) all the other things. You can find Jacqueline Ferkins and pictures of her amazing dresses on Instagram at JFKillsDarlings and at her website, JacquelineFerkins.com. 
For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. Finally, a huge thank you to Ford Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org. <laughs>